Hey y'all, welcome to Ain't No Such Thing, where we tell original southern horror stories. My name is Amanda, and I've got a good one for you right now. On the Dark Road Elias Walking Stick leaned back in his creaking rocker and sucked on his corncob pipe, the sputtering firelight lining the canyons and gullies of his 78-year-old face. Years and years and years ago, he began, before the war, and the war before that, and the war before that, there was a Cherokee woman who lived alone with her baby up on Bear Ridge. Her people had come back from Oklahoma, back from the Trail of Tears, and there they'd picked up the habit of carrying their children strapped on their backs the way the Plains Indians do. One night, her baby began to cry, and when she picked it up, it seemed warm with fever. But there was no water with which she could cool its brow, for the well had gone dry that very day, and there was nothing for it but to go back down to the valley to the nearest spring. Even sick, she didn't want to leave the baby alone in the cabin at night, so she strapped it onto her back and started back down the trail. The spring she was heading for was in a sacred place, surrounded by tall pines in a valley where no other pine trees grew. But the woman had been long in Oklahoma, and had forgotten the ways of the hills, so she was not afraid to take her water there. Finally, she came to the spring, and there she filled her bucket. And when she stood up and made to go, she felt breathing on her neck, and knew something tall was standing right behind her. And a voice, which didn't sound like anything she'd ever heard, whispered in her ear. This is what it said. Woman, you take water from my sacred place. Now I will take something of your own. A white woman would have screamed or fainted or even turned around, but she was Cherokee for all her Oklahoma ways, and more sensible than that. Instead, she bolted like a deer, running up the trail as fast as her strong legs could carry her, and when she was safe in her cabin with the door barred and the shutters latched, she unstrapped her baby and went to unwrap his blankets. And there was blood on the blankets, and she began to scream, for what she found was that the baby's head had been bitten clean off. Jesus Christ, thought Steve, stopping the tape and shifting uncomfortably on the hardwood floor. Beside him, Monica sat perfectly still, her elbows on her kneecaps and her eyes half-closed, the firelight shimmering off her straight black hair. God, he whispered in her ear. This is such cheerful stuff you're collecting. As usual, she ignored him. Bitten off? By what? Mr. Walking Stick smiled, exposing surprisingly good dentures. Who can say? He took another puff on his pipe. Nowadays, they call that whole valley where that spring was Callie Hollow. Made like it's named after some old white woman named Callie who used to live there. Actually, Callie just comes from the old Cherokee word Sukala. Maybe that's what done it. The Sukala. Steve leaned back against the warm stones of the hearth wall, surreptitiously running his index finger down the inside of Monica's jeans-covered thigh. Shifting her weight, she moved away from his hand. Irritated, he looked at Mr. Walking Stick and tried to smile. Sue Callie? What, what's that? Sue Calla, corrected Monica, before the old man could answer. It's some kind of local wood spirit or demon. A shapeshifter. He'd heard the term in the movie on HBO the other night either Wolfen or the Howling. He was always getting those two mixed up. You mean like a werewolf? No, Monica said with pedantic patience. More like the Algonquin Manitou. It can take on the form and personality of anything it wants to. The deer you've spent half a day tracking up the mountain, 
the black horse you find in your stable at night, the strange woman you meet on the road, even people you know. Mr. Walkingstick nodded. In some stories, it can look like them and talk like them and tell you things that only they'd know. Oh, like a Cherokee version of the thing. Monica looked pained, as she always did when he mentioned the things that he knew about. His enthusiasm for popular culture clearly embarrassed her. Sometimes he thought he embarrassed her. One day, he meant to have a talk with her about that. After all, it wasn't just his hobby, it was his field, for Christ's sake. A field just as valid as hers. He never made fun of her for studying old folklore. Mr. Walkingstick interrupted his brooding. If you're interested in the Sukala, I know another story about that critter. Monica smiled that peculiar smile that changed her face from horsey to striking. Yes, please. Turn the tape back on, Steve. It's getting late. Your parents are going to worry. Let them. My dissertation is worth it. Knowing better than to argue, he put a new cassette into the machine. Not long after the war, they fought to free the slaves, began Mr. Walkingstick, shifting back into his formal storytelling mode. There was a white family that lived down on the creek that runs through what they call Cali Hollow. One evening, when the cicadas were first singing and the air was starting to get cool, they were just sitting down to supper, when there was a knock at the door and in walked the local circuit preacher, all tall and thin and wearing his black suit and big black hat. They weren't glad to see him, not being terribly godly folk, but they made him a place anyway, and he took a seat, and there he sat not taking off his hat or speaking or eating the food they pushed in front of him. Figuring he was touched, they went about wolfing down their stew and were just pushing their plates away when the door busted open and a cousin came running in. It seemed some neighbor had found the reverend's trap wagon up on the ridge, with his black suit on the seat all in tatters, and pieces of the reverend in the tatters. So who was sitting in front of them looking like the reverend and dressed like him and wearing his hat at the table? Right then, the stranger cleared his throat, and looking at him, everyone found they couldn't move. They were sat fast in their seats as if they'd been nailed there, as stiff as the sparrow when the black snake looks him in the eye, and the stranger stood up. Stood up taller in the firelight than the reverend could ever stand. So tall, his big hat brushed the roof beams, and his eyes were glowing like the eyes of a bobcat in a birch tree when you shine your lantern in the branches. And this is what he said. Here you all are, with your bellies fat and full of food, and my belly empty. And what shall I have for my supper? A couple of days later, a traveling man found the door open, but no family in the cabin. Just bits of cloth and chewed bone all over the floor. And under the table, all their shoes, with all their feet still in them. Mr. Walkingstick leaned back and shut his eyes like a musician waiting for applause. You know, Monica, said Steve, not bothering to whisper much this time. I think I prefer the stories you used to get, the ones about buried treasure and skeletons in the graveyard, and black horses with red eyes at the crossroads at night, and ghost trains, and the devil showing up at poker games. All those stories are Disney material compared to this. She actually moved closer to him and gave his thigh a squeeze, reassuring him for once. Don't be a wussy, she said, but the gesture cut the harshness out of the words. Getting up, she stretched her lanky frame before the fire. Thank you very much, Mr. Walking Stick, for the stories. It's material I don't think anyone has collected before. 
The old man rose somewhat unsteadily out of his wicker-backed chair. Well, I thank you and your friend for the visit, Missy. I don't see many people anymore. Do they really study old tales and such down at the university? Monica shook his hand. Oh, yes, they study all kinds of things these days. They're even letting Steve write his thesis on old comic books and movies. Steve winced, although he should have gotten used to her jibes by now. Not just comic books and movies is an overview of popular culture. The old man nodded as if he actually understood what Steve was talking about. You want to hear some more stories? You just come back on up here anytime. He took Steve's hand. His grip was dry and firm and surprisingly strong, and for a moment, Steve thought that there was going to be a contest to see who would stop squeezing first. Sure you young people won't stay for supper? I'd be glad to have you. Monica looked at Steve as if she found the idea attractive. You never know what might appeal to her. Well, I shot a possum last Monday. Still got most of them in the icebox. It's really tasty with collard greens and some sweet taters. Monica didn't even need Steve's imploring glance. No thanks, we, we couldn't impose. We're on a diet, Steve added weakly. Mr. Walking Stick nodded. You diet, boy? Yes, sir. What color? The old man cackled like a chicken. That's a joke, son. Steve made himself smile. The calculated folksiness was beginning to grate. Mr. Walking Stick followed them to the door. You take good care of this young lady, son. Somewhat reluctantly, Steve shook his hand again. Don't worry, sir, I intend to. Monica laughed. Actually, I have to take care of him. Mr. Walking Stick shook his head and suddenly looked solemn, like a contemplative turtle. That's just because he's a stranger here. You go back north with him to the big cities and he'll do the looking after you. Steve smiled. I don't know about that, but thank you. Right now, I've got to get her back to her parents' house before they have a heart attack. Taking Monica's arm, he stepped through the doorway and out onto the gravel path. Mr. Walking Stick shut the door behind them. Outside, the air was surprisingly cold. The car was a dark shape on the pale river of the dirt road, and the elms and birches a darker mass behind. Something moved on the gravel, causing Steve to recoil. <gasps> Jesus, a snake! Monica calmly took a penlight flashlight out of her purse. Where? He pointed. The light picked up a thick shape with a blunt head and raised snout coiling in the flinty pebbles. Monica walked to it. Careful, he warned. It might be poisonous. She kneeled and poked at it. It's just a hog nose out looking for toads. They're not poisonous. In fact, they don't even bite. Watch this. She poked it again and it rolled limply on its side. She picked it up. Instead, they play dead. See? She advanced with it and he took a step backwards, almost off the path. Put it down or I'll faint too. She laughed, but not meanly, and put the snake down. Steve, you are such a wimp, she said, walking towards him. They embraced. I love it when you call me names, he said, just glad that she was touching him. Their kiss was interrupted by a gastric rumble. She pulled away. What the hell was that? My stomach. Mad that I skipped lunch. She pulled him close and bent her head to kiss him. Poor baby. We'll just have to get you something to eat on the way back. Do we have time? Your parents can worry all they want. You need to be fed. She kissed him again, and he was happy. The neon sign atop the diner advertised Pizza Mountain Trout. Steve wondered if it was a single dish-fried fish on pizza crust with tomato paste and mozzarella cheese 
maybe with black olives in the eye sockets. He hated the way all the little restaurants on the parkway served rainbow trout with the head still on and the eyes looking at you. Inside, he ordered a hamburger. There was a glass case full of imitation Cherokee artifacts beside the cash register, while the walls were decorated with folksy sayings like, Chief Redman says, Don't speak evil of your neighbor until you've walked a mile in his moccasins. The red formica table had several old mustard stains on it. Mr. Walkingstick is a very accomplished storyteller, said Monica, sipping her Pepsi. Maybe too accomplished. What do you mean? He absentmindedly squeezed the bottle of ketchup, which was shaped like a squaw in a blanket. A Cherokee Mrs. Butterworth. A bubble of the thin red liquid appeared atop the figure's head, making her look as if she'd been scalped. His stories are really too polished, almost literary. That means they may not be authentic folktales. Really? She nodded. I remember once when I was Dr. Coram's graduate assistant. He was doing a book on Appalachian jump tales, and I was helping him record them. There was one old preacher up near Boone who told this great story about a mean old man who was looking for buried treasure that was supposed to be sunk at the bottom of this abandoned well. The only trouble was the well had some kind of demon guarding it. She lit a cigarette, which annoyed him, as she had once again promised to quit. Okay, at the climax of the story, the old man was out by the well at midnight, pulling on this wet, slimy rope that went down into the water, and feeling something heavy on the other end. Just then, the moon went behind some clouds, and he couldn't see anything, but he kept on pulling. Whatever it was at the end of the rope got stuck under the lip of the well. So he reached down and he got his hands under what felt like a big wet canvas bag full of mud and maybe something else. He just got it up to the level of his face when the thing that felt like a bag reached out and put its arms around his neck. She looked at him and grinned, waiting for a reaction. He smiled. It was the demon and it killed him. Right. It was also the climax to some old ghost story by someone named James. Not Henry, someone else. The preacher told the same story... In fact, the ending was almost word for word. It turns out that they had several collections of classic ghost stories in the Sunday school library. The waitress brought his hamburger and fries. Despite the bright orange dye in her hair, she looked to be about 70. You want anything, honey? She asked Monica. Just some water. While she was getting it, Steve took a bite of the hamburger. It tasted like a charred hockey puck. He decided he might have been better off with Mr. Walking Stick's leftover possum. Monica began to steal his fries, but he didn't say anything, even though they were the most edible thing on the plate. The waitress came back with the water. Sure you don't want any food, honey? We got some nice pie in the icebox. Some cobbler, too. Monica shook her head. No, thanks. I'm on a diet. He wondered how she could say that with a straight face between mouthfuls of his fries. Besides, we have to eat and run. We're due back in Boone by 9.30 and it looks like we're going to be late. Fine thing for her to be worrying about that now, he thought. Oh, you can make it, said the waitress. If you take that shortcut. Shortcut? asked Monica. I didn't know there was one. Sure. This highway out here loops around the valley, but old Cali Road cuts right through it. Once you get down the mountain, there aren't any lights, of course, but turn on your high beams, you'll be all right. Old Cali Road? The waitress nodded. Take the ramp right here beside the diner. That turn off between us and the shell station? Look out for potholes, though. It'll take you straight across the valley, and then it ends in a dirt road that goes up the far ridge. 
It was supposed to cut through the edge of the reservation, too, but there was some big upset between the county and the tribal council and the federal people, and it never got any further. It was one of those CCC roads that Roosevelt's people were building back in the Depression. For a moment, she looked embarrassed. Of course, that was all before my time, so I don't know too much about that. Monica nodded gravely. Well, maybe I'll have some of that pie after all, she said, taking Steve's last french fry. Outside, the bats were swooping through the parking lot lights and the cicadas were singing in the trees. Outside, the bats were swooping through the parking lot lights and the cicadas were singing in the trees. Sure enough, there was a road winding down the mountain to the pool darkness of the valley. Beside it was a railing with several telescopes, a picnic table, and a lighted sign showing a bonneted old lady pointing, and the words, Callie says, Whoa, bud, this view's too good to miss. Why is this sign lighted? asked Steve. You can't see anything at night. Monica walked to the railing and stared down at the disappearing line of lights. Callie Hollow, like in Mr. Walking Stick's story. Steve nodded. Right, it's probably full of spirits and demons. It could be. She sounded like she took the idea seriously. Are you afraid? She sat on the railing, already seeming to have forgotten about the need to be back in Boone. Steve wondered what she would do if she didn't have him to herd her around and see that she got places on time. No, I'm not afraid, she answered, still sounding as if she thought his question had been a serious one. Are you? I'm a city boy, remember? Some of the most superstitious people I've ever met have been city boys. Well, I'm not one of them. An idea struck him. She was always accusing him of being too timid and earnest. But I know how to deal with spirits and demons. He jumped up on the picnic table and began to intone, trying to sound like an actor in one of the outdoor dramas so popular here in North Carolina. Spirits of the mountain, hear me! Steve, don't, she said softly. He ignored her, determined to carry this through without her making him feel embarrassed. Hear me, O spirits of wood and stream. Hear me and give us safe passage through your lands. Leave us unharmed, that we may buy rubber tomahawks and rock candy at the tourist shops of your people, and that we may purchase their leather goods at outrageous prices, and get our pictures taken with the chiefs in the fiberglass teepees on Main Street, and pay homage to the live bears at every service station. The echo faded, and with it his sudden burst of high spirits. He looked down, feeling stupid again, hoping for a smile, but not really expecting one. But Monica wasn't looking at him at all. Her face wore an expression of intense listening. What is it? All the cicadas and crickets and the rest, they just stopped. He listened. The insect chorus was as loud as ever. No, they haven't. She shook her head. No. Just for a minute, while you were chanting that stuff. It was like there was a break in the rhythm. Or it was on a big record that skipped a groove. I didn't notice. He jumped down and put his arm around her. At least she wasn't mad at him for acting like a clown. Come on, we do need to get going. She gave him one brief kiss before she slipped back behind the wheel. Not long after they passed the last light pole, the road leveled out and they were driving a fairly straight two-lane strip of asphalt that ran between dark fields and darker stands of trees. Once their headlights picked up what Steve at first thought was a pair of Great Danes playing beside the road. As they bounded away, he realized they were baby deer. Monica drove silently, steering past potholes. He envied her skill with the stick shift 
and her ability to navigate treacherous mountain turns. Still, Mr. Walking Stick had a point. Get her in a New York traffic jam and she might not be so hot. He fiddled with the radio dial, catching a few words amid the buzzing. Sinners! Not saved. Holy retribution! Several times he heard the word AIDS spoken with a particular vehemence. Turn it off, Monica said in a tired voice. All you ever get up here is static and preachers. She sounded beat. The road was fairly straight, and the moon was out making the landscape ghostly but quite visible. Even he shouldn't have any trouble driving through here, he thought. He was about to ask her to pull over and let him take the wheel when they hit the pothole. The car lurched, scraping something on the asphalt, and bounced out of the hole. Then a tire blew. They went over the embankment into the ditch. Monica turned off the engine. He could hear the night noises and the ever-present cicadas and the rest of the choir, even with the windows rolled up. They sat still, held fast by the seatbelts that had kept them from being thrown into the dashboard or against the door, both of them staring straight ahead. Shit, said Monica after what seemed like a long time. Steve got out. The car was completely in the ditch, having slid sideways down the grassy bank. It had come to rest on almost level gravel and was pointed parallel to the road. He heard Monica's door open. Help me with the spare, she said tonelessly. He immediately felt irritated, like she was trying to prove something. You can't change a tire here, he said, trying to keep his annoyance out of his voice. She opened the hatchback and tossed out the jack. Why not? The car's pretty level and the ground's firm enough. Maybe, but we can't drive in the ditch, and we won't get out of here without a tow truck. We'll see about that. She got the tire out without waiting for him to help her. He gave in. Well, at least let me do that. That way I'll be the one the car falls on. She went on jacking up the front end. I've changed more tires than you have, city boy. Get the dry cell flashlight from the back and set it on the ground beside me. He did, angling the bulb so it pointed at the wheel. You always make me feel like Steve Trevor. Who? Wonder Woman's boyfriend. The one who always stood around and looked pretty while she bashed Nazis. Or maybe, what's his name? The guy who always is in the background holding Sheena the jungle spear while she wrestles with the lion. What's his name? She grunted. How should I know? You're the student of popular culture. Standing up, she removed the flat and sent it rolling down into the ditch. You think my degree is a worthless one? He'd never said that, of course. But he didn't want to argue with her now. Not when she was in the middle of her competent woman act. The car seemed to teeter precariously on the jack. He was debating the merits of saying anything when she walked toward him. Look, I'm sorry if I'm making you feel like a useless male sidekick. Why don't you walk down the road past those trees and see if there are any houses? She pointed to where the road went into a bend that snaked through the stand of pines obscuring what lay beyond. It's not safe to leave you here. You won't be out of earshot. Now go on while I put on the spare tire. Here, take my pen light. She pressed it into his hand. Look out for snakes. She kissed him on the cheek. Feeling like a child sent off to do something useful, he clambered up out of the ditch and started down the road, keeping to the shoulder even though no oncoming car could be within a mile without him hearing it. Behind him, the light of the big dry cell flash dwindled. His loafers crunched on the gravel. Something twisted sinuously on the asphalt, its coils black in the moonlight. Wanting to run, he turned the beam on it. It was thin for its length, and it did not have the triangular head Monica had once told him to watch out for. Oh, it's harmless, 
he told himself several times. It's harmless, he told himself several times. He was under the pines now. Their smell was very strong. The dark branches creaked. He heard a soft, Woo! And then a huge winged shape drifted silently through a patch of moonlight. It was the first time he'd seen a wild owl. He kicked a pine cone into the ditch and tried to whistle, but the notes were wrong and sounded strained and hollow and distant. The cool wind pressed the fabric of his shirt into the small of his back and caused the needles overhead to rustle. Somewhere nearby, frogs were singing, and he heard water bubbling over stones. The pine canopy was a claustrophobic ceiling, and he was glad when he was out of it. Pausing for a moment, he looked up at the dark palisades of surrounding mountains and the necklace of light that was the parkway, then higher at the stars. Up on the main roads, they'd been blotted out by sodium and neon, almost as much as they were in the city. Not so down here. He felt like he could fall up and up, the way kids are supposed to feel when they lie on their backs at night and look at the sky. That had never happened to him in the city. But once, when he was very young, his parents had closed the store for a weekend and taken him on a trip to the Catskills. He'd slept the whole way, and when he woke up it was dark, and they were in a motel. Everybody was getting out of the car. The lights in the parking lot had been burned out, and he'd looked up and suddenly felt sick and afraid, and he'd buried his face against his mother's breast until they were inside. The memory embarrassed him, and he tried to make it go away. Across the road, the untended rows of a vast field lay etched in gray and silver. Not more than a hundred yards away was the dark bulk of a house. The grass in the yard hissed around his feet and the burrs pierced his socks. He thought of snakes again, but forged on. The steps of the porch creaked alarmingly. Under the porch roof, the door was a black rectangle with air moving in stale currents from within. He smelled dust and mildew and rot. The house had to be deserted. Beyond it, the road snaked on, through more trees and past further fields. There was another dark shape that might have been a barn or another house, but no lights. Realizing that he was close to being out of earshot, he decided to turn back. He found Monica sitting on the hood smoking a cigarette. The jack and the flat tire were both stored in the back of the car. You got the spare on okay? She nodded. No problem. Unfortunately, the banks of the ditch are too steep. I don't have the room to turn and make at them head on. You were right. Without a tow truck, we're stuck here. He sat beside her feeling oddly calm. So much for the idea that helping her record material would make for a nice restful vacation from typing his thesis. Still, maybe they could look back on this later as an adventure. He pointed up at the sky. I'm not used to such bright stars. They look like diamonds on black velvet. She didn't respond to the image. Alright, so I'm a lousy poet. <laughs> Thank God he'd never shown her any of the stuff he'd written back when he was an undergraduate and an English major. Find any houses? She asked at length. One. It was deserted. He slid off the hood. It can't be too bad to walk back up to that diner. I bet our waitress friend knows somebody with a tow truck. She took one last puff and dropped her cigarette. You're right. At least maybe I'll be able to call mom and dad. The embankment directly beside them was very steep and slick, but a few hundred feet back it was more gradual. Not wanting to have to struggle up the rise and look foolish, he started walking along the ditch to the place where the climb would be easier. Wait, she said from behind him. Before he could pause and look back, he tripped over something and went sprawling. Steve, are you okay? Except for a skinned elbow, he was. 
Sitting up, he turned the pen light on the dark mass he'd tripped over. What is it? asked Monica, catching up to him. Just a bundle of oily rags. She stared at it. No, she said at last. No, it's not. He looked again, seeing the dark cloth and the darker stains soaking through the tatters. In the middle of the scattered mess was a loop of something that glistened. The light picked out a tennis shoe and then a pale hand, but there didn't seem to be any head. Steve scrambled backwards until he couldn't control his nausea, and he doubled over to vomit. Monica bent over him and gently held his shoulder. We must have driven right past it without knowing it was in the ditch. It's a body, he said unnecessarily, not really hearing her. She held him, although he didn't want her to. I know. What could have done that? A truck, maybe. Hit and run? Her voice was as calm as a newscaster's. Usually he envied her for her strength, but now it just made him feel weaker. But the head was gone. He immediately regretted saying that, irrationally fearing she might want to go look for it or something. Dogs could have been at it, she continued clinically. Even a bear. He stiffened at the word. With a bear, you didn't need a hit and run to explain what had happened. He thought of the grunting black things that begged for food by the trailer camps, slow and greedy and calm as big dogs. He thought of the reservation where some loophole in federal law allowed the animals to be kept under even the most cramped conditions, and every service station and rest stop had its own live bear sweltering away in a chain-link cage with an asphalt floor. If one of those panting brutes ever got loose, it might well do something like this. He thought of watching Gentle Ben as a kid and how the big wolfling bear, supposedly as friendly and loyal as Lassie, had terrified him so much that he had begged his parents to change the channel. Monica suddenly stood up. Steve, she said softly, her hand firmly grasping his and pulling him upright. Let's start walking slowly the other way. Be calm. Don't look back. He walked and didn't look. Why? Something big crossed the road back there. Keep walking. They passed the car. Why didn't they just get inside? He started to say something, then thought of being trapped in there while something large and hairy snuffled against the windshield. The pines loomed ahead. They were in the resin-scented shadow when Monica let go of his hand. Run, she said. They bounded over the gravel, past the whispering, untended field. He meant to point out the bulk of the house, but ten paces ahead of him, she'd already seen it. Her speed increased as she plunged into the tall grass. He panted, nearly tripping over something metallic, and strove to catch up. The porch stairs groaned under her pounding Nikes. Pausing, she leaned out of the darkness and urged him on. Almost sure he heard something plowing through the tangled weeds behind him, he stumbled on, his heart roaring. One of the rotted steps actually cracked under his feet, but he was off it and on the porch before it gave way. Monica was at his arm, first pulling him toward, then pushing him into the blackness. The door of the house must have been open rather than missing as he'd first supposed because there was a slamming sound behind him and he couldn't see a thing. He switched on the pen light. It caught peeling wallpaper, holes in the floorboards, and Monica's hands fumbling beside the doorframe. Finding a bar, she slid it home, then turned toward him. He held the pen light on her face. What was out there? She pushed the light away, taking him by the hand and turning off the beam. Nothing. The darkness rushed in, heavy with mold and something else. What was she doing? Monica? I'm not Monica, she said gently. 
That was Monica in the ditch beside the road. The hand holding his began to grow. You've been listening to Ain't No Such Thing, On the Dark Road, written by Ian McDowell, from his book Three Stories of Love, Death, and Things in the Dark. Ian was one of our earliest supporters on the podcast and one of our patrons, and I can't thank him enough for letting me read this story. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. I'm going to visit the other two stories in this book, so we'll visit with him again soon. If you enjoyed this story, then you need to subscribe to Ain't No Such Thing wherever you get your podcast. We're available on Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more. We have additional Patreon-exclusive content if you visit our Patreon page. Thanks so much, y'all, for listening. And I'll be back with another one for you real soon. <laughs>